word to us this morning begins in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 42. We'll read verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God, who is Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare his praise in the coastlands. Yahweh will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. We'll turn now to Acts chapter 26 and begin in verse 1. And Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made to God by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself, that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried uh, to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. 
While thus engaged, as I was journeying, journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were, with, uh, who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and witness, not only of the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death, And so, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day, testifying both the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. If you would now, please take your bulletin, and we'll turn to the back and read together as a congregation, Psalm 89, verses 19 through 29. Psalm 89, of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. morning again. All of humanity knows that we're, we're not what we're made to be. And so if you think through history, there's all manner of movements to make things new, to collect into a work of reconciliation. It's our word for today. 
Or uh, you can think about it in terms of unification. So it's not a new story. We know it from the Tower of Babel. Mankind came together, uh, unified in a plan to make something new. Of course, it was in direct antithesis to God. We see that nearer in history. We see it with, with the forces of communism. It's another form of reconciliation in which you're making all men the same. So it's, it's a mockery of what God is doing in which you're making a shapeless blob, but it, it still takes that form. And you can see it in the history of colonialism and expansion and taking ideas and, and spreading them out. And there's, there's some good in some of these. Even within the church, you can see the, this same purpose in, in moving outward in the holy wars of uh, the Middle Ages. In our day, we can see it too. We can see it within uh, the war for ideas in our land in a reconciling, unifying message of love and peace that stands against God. So we recognize the need. All of, all of those efforts fall short in some way or another. It's our goal then in Colossians to move away from a myopic view of what God is doing to, to take a step backwards. And Paul encourages us to do this as we looked last week at the structure of chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He's taking us backwards to the beginning, looking at the lens of all creation through Christ and looking at God's purpose in it. So it's our goal today to look at that same section. Now I'm not going to focus on the literary connection, so how it's structured and, and specifically what it says about Christ, but instead how Paul is using it within the context of Colossians chapter 1 to teach us and to explain his, his own mission so that we find our purpose, our fulfillment, and the story of what God is doing all here together flowing out of the work of Christ. So if you would, uh, let's bow and pray. Lord, we come into your presence asking that you would fulfill your promises. We look at the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, and we see the beginning of it here. And Lord, we want to see the fullness of it. So we pray that you would teach us through your word, give us ears to hear, set aside uh, both what's wrong and deceived in our minds so that we're renewed unto a true image of you, and also those views which are less than what you're calling us to. So Lord, we pray that you would... Build us up, make us new this morning, use your word to cut us, reshape us, and give us new life. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to read again, because, because we want to look at, at Paul's praise in uh, Colossians chapter 1 within the context of his entire prayer. So I'm going to read you that prayer beginning in verse 3. This is, this is what Paul prays. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is, faithful, who is a faithful servant of Christ, on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. 
For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in every respect, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has made us fit to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain, the power of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and unto him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is also the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have preeminence in all things. For it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness, all the fullness, to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things unto himself. Having made peace through the blood of the cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond any accusation. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Paul is moving, as we saw last week, he's comparing and moving from the first creation in which Jesus is the image, is the basis of everything that he's praying for. It's the basis of the knowledge of the will of God moving forward into good works and increasing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all endurance and steadfastness so that you might give thanks. The basis of all of that is the work of Christ founded in the person of Christ, the image of God invisible, the firstborn of all creation. And he's specifically comparing that first creation to a new creation, and he uses the word reconciliation. So in Paul... In the book of Colossians, and, and this is not a common word. It's only found in Paul in the New Testament. It's found two times in the Septuagint, but not, it, it's, it's hard to take the context from those two passages. But Paul sees this first creation, the creation of the heavens and earth, as parallel and fulfilled then in this word of reconciliation. And so what I want to do today is discuss the outworking of that reconciliation. What does it mean? We have a general idea of reconciliation as bringing two parties together, ceasing hostility, exchanging hostility for friendliness. But in Paul, we're going to start with some observations. And the first observation is this, his prayer, not just the thanksgiving part of the prayer, but his prayer that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. His prayer is that they would know God's will, and this is God's will. The reconciliation of the world. And specifically, not just of people. And we, we don't usually think this way. right? We think about God reconciling us, a specific segment of humanity. But what Paul says in, in uh, verse 20 is that God's purpose in Christ is that 
all things would be reconciled through him and to him. So we have to take reconciliation and increase the scope of what God is doing. And the reason for that is Paul, as I mentioned last time, he's used this word all. He's used it in his prayer seven times in the first half of the prayer, and then within the discussion of who Christ is in verses 15 to 20, he uses it eight more times. The eighth time then is this reconciliation of all things. So two times seven and then the eighth. In all things, he's making them new. There's an emphasis in what Jesus is doing. The creator of the heavens and the earth All things were founded in him. All things were made by his agency. All things are moving toward him as the final goal. And in the new creation, it's no different. All the fullness of God dwells in him. All things are being reconciled through him as the agent of reconciliation. And all things are being reconciled unto him. So the movement of all of history from beginning to end then is found in Christ and the reconciliation of all things. Now, within, within this prayer, then, all things, well, he defines for us, he expands it. By him, all things were created, and what are all those things? It's not just us. All things were created in the heavens, or on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, whether rulers, whether authorities, whether powers. So all things, the things we can't see, the things we can see, the things that are in heaven, the things that are on earth. And this scope of reconciliation then has to cover everything. All things that God has made, the purpose, the will of God is that all things would be reconciled unto him. Now you can see where there have been various tracks in history where, where they've taken this and, and gone in a wrong-headed, wrong-headed way. So, so you get a kind of universalism, an annihilism as explanations, but they, they don't work within the book of Colossians. They don't work within uh, an epistle where Paul is writing about the decree of debts against us being nailed to the cross and rulers and powers and authorities being stripped uh, of who they are. They don't work because God, somehow within this reconciliation of all things, it must include then judgment. I want to make one more observation here. Um, he says, so in verses 19 and, 19 and 20, if you remember, I didn't pass them out again, but the, the parallelism, the structure of this passage is so that, so that verses 15 and 16 parallel then the verses 18b through 20. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created parallels then he is the beginning he is the arche the firstborn from the dead and it was or or more directly the fullness the fullness was pleased to dwell in him all the fullness and we know from chapter 2 verse 9 that what that means is god's fullness but here paul leaves out the subject so the subject being It was the Father's will or the Father's good pleasure for the fullness of deity to dwell in him. And he makes it then parallel to his prayer in chapter 1, verse 9, that we, so Christ is filled up with the fullness of God as the beginning of the new creation, and his prayer is that we would be filled up with the knowledge of God, moving forward then in good works 
and producing then an increasing knowledge of God himself. So there's a parallelism between Jesus and his creation, in which he's full of the fullness of God, and we're full of the knowledge of God, and they move forward and on these paths. And we're going to then interpret um, this section, this praise, through the lens of Paul's prayer, that we would be filled with the knowledge of God, and the knowledge, sorry, the knowledge of the will of God, and we know now what the will of God is, that all creation would be moved forward into the reconciliation of all things through Christ and unto, for, by Christ. So that's his will. That's a, kind of a, a big umbrella statement, and, and we don't even yet have a definition of the word reconciliation. So I just want to remind you then as we're thinking about the reconciliation of all things, I, I, I don't know that I can wrap my head around this. Um, maybe somebody can explain it to me. But nonetheless, we have to take God's purpose, his will, and work towards understanding what he, what he asks of us for knowing this will, that his will is to reconcile all things to himself, and what does that look like? We know at least part of what it looks like is found in Romans chapter 8. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that all creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And so in Paul's picture of the world, all of creation is groaning. All of creation is waiting for this purposeful fulfillment of the reconciliation of all, all things. And we, we read about it in Revelation 2. Jesus says, I am making all things new. All of creation. And so we see that. I, I've been having us read out of Isaiah in Isaiah 40 through 66 because it's a section of the Bible that reminds us of what this all things look like. A picture of a renewed heaven, a new earth. And what does that mean in Colossians? And I have one more observation before we move on to the, the next point. And that is that the fullness of God dwells in him. It's found in the context of in him. And indeed, what we see throughout Paul, particularly in the epistle of the Colossians, is that, that this work of reconciliation, we'll go to 2 Corinthians eventually and we'll, we'll see it there again, begins by being in Christ. And so what, what's happening is Paul says Jesus is in the business of making all things new and how that starts is he's taking creation, made by Christ, through Christ, for Christ, and now Christ has entered that very creation, and the reconciliation begins by having creation placed back inside the Christ who has entered into creation. Try to, try to wrap your head around that. We're found in, in him, and that's where the new heavens and the new, new earth are founded. And so that, that, that's why he, he, he sees all these things come together, it may help with then a picture from the Old Testament. God gives us this whole history so that we can wrap our minds around things that are not understandable. Paul prays that we would know the things that are impossible to know. They're beyond our comprehension. 
And so one of those pictures then we find in the flood, the whole intent of man's, of man's heart was evil from his youth, and God in his mercy, he provides an ark through the person of Noah. And if you think about what happened on that ark, all of creation in miniature was placed inside the ark. Right, so two of every kind, they got on the ark, and so we're not talking about the, the, the structure, so God kept the lights in the sky, but everything else was wiped out. And all of creation that was to remain is placed in the ark. That is the beginning of the new creation. And, and Peter draws this parallel directly for us. Jesus is that ark. For the new creation of the heavens and the earth to begin, it must be placed within the body of Christ. We'll get to some explanation of that here in a bit. So, secondly, in Paul's prayer for us, that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will, we know that that, knowledge, that, that will, then, is the reconciliation of all things. All creation right now is under slavery. But the knowledge of his will must be accompanied by spiritual wisdom and understanding for it to take effect. So our second, second observation then about this work of re- reconciliation, the way that Paul presents to us the foundation in Jesus is that Jesus, I guess the minimalist way of saying that is Jesus possesses all wisdom. So in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, as part of his argument to the Colossians, Paul reminds them that all wisdom, the treasure of all wisdom, and all knowledge is, is found hidden in Christ. You not, may not remember this from last week under the litany of passages, but we, we went to Proverbs chapter 8, which talks about wisdom. And wisdom personified then says, I was at the beginning, I was with you. Yahweh acquired me in the beginning in his creation of the heavens and the earth. And so the stronger way of making this point is to say that Jesus is wisdom. So he, he both possesses all wisdom, it's hidden within him, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, Paul says this, Jesus, the Christ, is power and wisdom. He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Jesus is wisdom. He was there at the beginning as the, the agent of creation, and that wisdom found in Jesus, expressed into, into the world, is the means of this work of reconciliation. So what, what, is, what does that mean? One more, uh, one more recollection for you. If you have a really good memory, and you can remember even three weeks ago, remember we discussed wisdom and understanding in the context of this prayer. Paul pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we went back then to Exodus chapter 35, verse 31, and 1 Kings chapter 7, and we found that exact series of language in that God filled, he placed by the filling of the Spirit, he filled the, the builders of the tabernacle and the t- temple with the spirit of wisdom and understanding so that they would have the skill to do the work. So now think about Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of God, and he's building a new heavens and a new earth. The author of the Hebrews tells us this. Moses was 
in the house. He was full of glory. But Jesus, being the builder of the house, has much more glory than Moses. Jesus is over the house-building project. We're bringing then all, all of the New Testament authors. John sees it this way too. Jesus came and tabernacled within our midst. But he is building then this, this, this project in which he is the one filled with wisdom and understanding to complete the will of God so that God the Father might be pleased. Now, why, why bring that up? In our understanding of what God is doing, so thinking about the will of God, that all things would be reconciled to himself, and Jesus as the, both the initiation, the agent, and the goal of both creation and reconciliation, he does it as wisdom, as the wisdom of God. And that means that when we think about the gospel, when we think about the scope of the reconciling work of God, it's done in wisdom, by the skill of God himself. That means that God skipped no steps. That also means that God did it efficiently, perfectly. He did every good work for this purpose of reconciling all things to himself. So the scope of reconciliation is done within wisdom. That means that if we talk about the gospel or we talk about reconciliation and it's smaller than, than the way that God brought it about, at best we're looking at, at one singular line, one part of what God is doing. At worst, we're distorting what God is doing. And so if, if we can speak of God's work and there's no need for Abraham and Israel in the understanding, the full understanding of what God is doing, then we've missed the mark. Because Jesus, the wisdom of God, is bringing all things unto his reconciling purpose. He didn't waste his time. He didn't waste his breath. Jesus spoke. He is the word spoken wisdom, accomplishing his goal. So every step along the way was necessary for the fullness of what God is after. If we want to know the will of God, we have to confess that. That Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a requirement. It's not, not just kind of a, a knowledge builder. It's a requirement unto the full scope of God's work. Okay, so then looking in the text, we see this, this section. I'll just remind you, it begins the second section. He is the head of the body of the church. So the reconciling work is found then in Christ, but by parallelism we can see that being in Christ is in his body right now, the church. So that's objectively how we understand being placed in Christ. Where the new heavens and the new earth are beginning is within the body of Christ, the church over which he is the head. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We'll come back to that so that he himself might come to have first place in all things. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So within this grand scope 
of reconciliation, and I stopped there on purpose. Our third observation is that the, the people of Colossae, and we can add ourselves to this number obviously too, are specifically in need of the work of reconciliation. So it doesn't exist a, apart from us. God is doing this work and we're in need as part of the recipient of all things of this work of reconciliation. And that may seem self-obvious. It should be self-obvious that we need this work of reconciliation, but we, we need that reminder that we specifically are an object within, within the big scope. So we have to get the big, big picture. God is reconciling all things to himself, and specifically we need that work of reconciliation, and the reasons there are outlined in three words. You were alienated, you were hostile in mind, you were engaged in evil deeds. The word alienated, Paul, Paul uses it, he, he um, explains what he means in Ephesians. Speaking of the Gentiles, you were aliens, you were strangers to the covenant of promise, you had no hope. So we, as Gentiles, outside of the scope of the covenant, we were aliens to that covenant. We were strangers we had no promises made to us. We did not have the promise of the covenant and the reconciling work made to us. We were apart. The second word there is hostile in mind. Uh, of course, we were also hostile in mind, but now he's encompassing the Jews too. So they were not aliens, not in the proper sense. They were included in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Mosaic covenant. They had the promises of God, but the problem with reconciliation for them was not that they were aliens, but that they were hostile in mind. They were enemies. And specifically, Paul wants us to know that they were enemies in mind. And we have that problem too, but it doesn't come to bear first on the Gentiles because until you have the covenant of promise, until you have God's word given to you, the formation of the battle lines is not as clearly drawn. So the enemies of mine are specifically than the Jewish people. They know God's will. They know what God wants, and yet they're enemies in their mind. And we can see this working out if you flip the page and look at chapter 2, verse 14. When Paul is talking about this reconciling work of Jesus, he says in verse 14 that he has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was opposed to us. So we have those same two people groups there. The decrees of the law spoke directly against the Jews because they fell short of what God called them to. But the decrees of the law also was opposed to those who were outside of the covenant. It did not allow them in. And so these decrees spoke against all people. Jew and Gentile, and Jesus took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now, both suffer under the engagement of evil deeds. And you can see in this loop, because we, we, we're guilty of all of these, we're alienated, we're hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that it's the same kind of self-fulfilling loop that Paul is praying the opposite, right? He prays, know the will of God, let it give birth through wisdom and understanding to the good work of house building that God has called you to. And in that good work of house building, 
you will know God more. So he increases our knowledge of God. Well, here the opposite is true. You work on the Tower of Babel, you set your mind in opposition to what God wants. And it says, uh, you're at the plain of Shinar in those days, and you say, well, I don't want God to judge me. I don't want God to give me a name. I'll make a name for myself. I'll stop myself from being scattered abroad. And so you set your, your, your labor to bear on that project, and what happens is you move further away. So you distort the knowledge of God even more. So you become even more opposed to God's work. And in that greater opposition, you set your, your, your labor to, to work against them even harder, and you engage in more evil deeds. And so simultaneously, there's, there's, there's always these two building projects going on. One is directed under Christ, building up the new heavens and the new earth, the temple in which God will dwell. And then the other one is like the Tower of Babel in the land of Shinar, built up as a shrine to ourselves, a name for ourselves. And you're building on one or you're building on the other. And Paul says, we need that work of reconciliation because specifically we were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. We're going to come back to those three in just a minute. But I want to talk for a minute here in verses 20 and 20, 21 and 22, the means of this reconciling work. He says that through him, all things are reconciled to him. And then he gives us a description, having made peace through the blood of the cross. So the outcome of this reconciling work is peace. And the means of the reconciling work is through the, through the blood of the cross. And then in verse 22, he says, you, you were, you formerly were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh. So we have two descriptions here, that through the blood of the cross and through his body of flesh, through death, Jesus is completing this work of reconciliation. So the, the means are through his body. Jesus had to enter into creation in a body of flesh, bear out that flesh in blood born on the cross. And that, that body of flesh through which he brings out his reconciling work, it's not just the point in time in which he hung on the cross, but Jesus entering into creation bore out the work of reconciliation through his entire work in his body of flesh. And more on that in, in just a second, too. So I, I want us to think about reconciliation, take it in a, a, a broader context. Part of it we know, we know well. I think most of us come from a tradition where we can think about the work of reconciliation, especially with regards to the Old Testament atonement, the, the kofar. I don't think I pronounced that right, but you all understand. So that, that, that work of reconciliation is specifically aimed then at our sin. The law speaks to it and the work of the covering, the atonement, that covering has to be, uh, that, 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 that sin has to be covered in the presence of God or the law will speak out against us. God's own declaration will speak against us. And so we have to be cleansed of corruption and pay the debt due according to the law. So you can find that in the verse we just read, in which Jesus is canceling out the certificate of decrees against us 
and which was opposed to us. He, take it, he took it all out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. But that in and of itself does not describe the entire reconciling work of God. There is another aspect to that reconciling work, and he speaks to it directly here in the book of Colossians. It, it's important to his premise. And that second part of reconciling work is that we need freedom. Freedom from slavery to powers and authorities, from slavery to sin and death, the rulers, the authorities, and from Satan himself. In, in the garden, God made man in his image, and he gave him then his purpose, his will, that they would rule, subdue, multiply, fill, be fruitful, to f fill up the earth. They were given authority, and yet Adam and Eve handed that authority away, so they voluntarily placed themselves in submission to Satan. They gave the authority away. There was a transfer. And so now, that because that authority is given away, there has to be a freeing from the authorities. So the second part of the reconciling work is a freedom from the thrones, the dominions, the rulers, the authorities. And you can see that again in Colossians 2 verse 15 on that same work on the cross in which he took the debt of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he nailed it to us. If that was sufficient, then we'd stop there. But simultaneously, in his work of reconciliation, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public display of them. And so in his work... Jesus both covered our sins, he made a, a, atonement for us, and he stripped the rulers, the authorities, the domain of darkness that had power over us of any remaining vestige of authority. So they're hollow. There is no power over us anymore, and that's part of what he wants us to know in the book of Colossians. So you can think then about, about these aspects as a priestly aspect, the work of covering the work of the atonement, a kingly aspect in which we need to be freed from the authority, from the tyranny of Satan, and set back onto the, the, the role that God has given us, the, the, the purpose, the vocation that God has made us for. And then there's a third aspect, because in the garden... When Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just the, the, the sin that separated them. You, you can remove that. You can remove the authority. But if they still have the deception, then you have not completed a work of reconciliation. And so a third aspect then of this reconciling work is that Jesus must conquer that deception. And we can see that in his, in his body of flesh. He lived. He died. He was resurrected. And he showed forth the image of God unto us, removing the deception that God was withholding from man what's necessary for his vocation, for his purpose, and teaching us what it means to be truly man. And so that's part of his reconciling work is in, in his life and death and resurrection we find then the knowledge, the true knowledge of God. And again, we can see this in Colossians, so we'll, we'll come back to meditate on, on this purpose too, but if you flip over a couple pages to Colossians chapter 3, in explaining the outworking, the fullness of this reconciliation, what Paul calls us to is put on the, the new self, the new man, 
who is being made new unto a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So in his work of reconciliation, not only is Jesus covering our sins, not only is he stripping the powers who, who ha- enslaved us, but he also is freeing us from our own deception, teaching us, renewing us unto a true knowledge, a true image of him. And so Jesus does this by having the fullness of God dwelling in him. He teaches us both who God is, Jesus tabernacled in our midst so that we see him who is invisible, and he did so as a man so that we see what God's purpose in man was. And so Jesus becomes the firstborn of the dead, the first true man to lead forth all of mankind into the work that we were always called to do. If we leave these aside, if we focus on just one, we diminish then this work that God is doing in reconciling all things to him. Because creation groans under slavery. All things must find reconciliation through this work of God in and through us. Now, the fifth, fifth point, we move on to the next verse. So, we were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death for this purpose, to present you before him holy and blameless and without accusation. We become part of this work of reconciliation. So first pass, we can think about, about the words that he chooses here. He again uses three words. So there, there was three, there was an alienation, there was an enmity in mind, and there was evil deeds, which we labored under. And now he's reconciling us through his body of flesh for this purpose, that he might present us before him. So it's unto Christ. The whole work of reconciliation is for him and unto him, to present us before him then with three new characteristics, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, beyond accusation. So holiness, we know, is nearness to God, being brought into his space. We were alienated, and we have to be brought near. This is specifically true of the Gentiles. You have to be made holy. There's an enmity of God that has to be reversed so that there's a, blameless, a blamelessness, no mark, no spot. And then finally, the powers, the authorities, speak accusations against us. Satan is the accuser, and he entered into heaven to stand and accuse the people of God. And so part of that work is to remove us beyond accusation. And and there's two halves to that, both the removal of the reason for accusation and the removal of the accusers. Both go into this work of, of Jesus reconciling us unto himself, unto the whole purpose of God, so that we'll be presented before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. But these words, they should remind you then of Old Testament language, to be holy and blameless. Sounds like a sacrifice, right? We're we're being brought near to God as blameless, spotless, without mar, to be presented before him. It's sacrificial language, but there's an addition to it, to be unaccused. If you would, turn with me to... uh, Let's go to Numbers 8. 
and then we'll back our way out into the reason for choosing this passage. So Numbers 8, and we'll look in verse 14. In the Exodus, as the people are coming out, uh, out of the land, God's giving his plan for building the tabernacle and then appointing the priests. And in the discussion of the inheritance that's coming up, he sets aside for himself the Levites. And it's in Numbers 8, chapter, sorry, Numbers chapter 8, verse 14, I want to look. He says, Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. They belong to me. After the Levites may go in to serve the tent of meeting, but you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave offering or a heave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I've taken them for myself instead of every firstborn of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine among the men and among the animals on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I sanctified them for myself. But I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons from the, among the sons of Israel to work the service of the sons of Israel at the tent of meeting to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel, that there may be no plague among the sons of Israel by their drawing near to the sanctuary. And so thus they did. The Levites were purified from sin, washed their clothes, and Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord, and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them, and afterward they went in to perform the service of the tent and to do the work of atonement. Within the context of this passage, specifically, Jesus has been called the image of God invisible. He's been called the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. He's giving unto us the inheritance of the saints in light. And so where is all of this drawing to? He's presenting us before God, holy and blameless and without accusation. It's a fuller picture of what God called the Levitical work to. So he set them aside as the firstborn. It's hearkening back to the Exodus. He said to Israel, this is my firstborn, and he redeemed the whole nation. And he said, the firstborn must be set aside to me. And the Levites then are the substitute for those firstborn. They're cleansed, they're atoned for, so the, the work of the covering is given unto them. And then in their new blamelessness, so they, they, their sin has been covered, they've been washed, they've been purified, and then they are presented before the Lord. In your Bible, you may see them presented as a wave offering or as a heave offering. You can go look that up later. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 29 and an understanding of it in 26, verse 26 that part of the offering system, when there was an offering which was for the Lord but given back for the priest to eat, they would lift it up to God, so it's his offering, and then God would give it as the inheritance to the people. And so when they, when they lift up the, the peace offering, the, the thigh or the breast, breast piece, they would lift it up to God, and then it would be given back to the Levites and the priests. And that, that was the wave offering. So the Levites themselves were, were a wave offering or a heave offering in which they're atoned, they're cleansed, they're presented to God as belonging to him, and then giving back to the people as their inheritance, a gift from the Lord 
to do this very same work which had just been done unto them. So they were atoned, they were cleansed for, and they were presented to God and given back to do the work of the atonement. Now, within the flow of Colossians, that's exactly what Paul is going to bring us to. He's reconciling us unto God, and this should sound familiar because it's straight out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and having reconciled us, he gives us to the work of reconciliation. He puts us within God's purpose, so we're joined unto the will of God to work on his behalf, doing the very same thing that Christ did. And, and that's why in the flow of Colossians, he moves from this prayer for the Colossians that they would be filled with the knowledge of, God, of the will of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they would know what Christ, who Christ is, what he's up to. They would be filled with the same spirit that he's filled with so that they could work alongside underneath the head in this building project. And then the next section of the epistle in Colossians, Paul is going to say, that's what I'm doing. I myself was made a minister of this very work of reconciliation, this very same work of new creation. That is his identity. Hyde read us this morning out of Acts 26. And you may not have noticed, but I'm going to read these two passages to you. When Jesus stopped Paul on the road to Damascus, he told him, Get up. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but to the things which I will appear to you, the things which you will see. I've delivered you from the Jewish people and from the Gentile people to whom I'm sending you for this purpose, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. To open their eyes so that they would turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by me. So why do we give thanks? Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Because he has made us fit. He's made us sufficient. Same idea as the Levites. He cleansed them. He made atonement for them. He qualified them unto the work. He made us sufficient to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He delivered us from the domain of darkness, verse 13, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see almost verbatim what Jesus told Paul his purpose was. Go open their eyes so that they'll be moved from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to the dominion of God, so that they receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among the holy ones. And he says, give thanks because that's what God is doing in you. God is reconciling all things. Within those all things, he's begun this work of reconciliation. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The reconciliation work begins in him and all who are reconciled find their place in him. So he takes us like he took Paul on the road to Damascus. He places us in him and he gives us then this same purpose. We're presented before God, holy, blameless, beyond the accusation of the accuser because he stripped them of their powers to do this work so that we might be added unto the work of the reconciliation. And so we see then those, those three elements. He's, he's made us sufficient to share in the inheritance of the holy ones in light. He's delivered us from or transferred us 
from the domain of darkness to the king of his son, and he's forgiven our sins. So you can see that then the echo of, of the scope of reconciliation. He's redeemed us. He's bought us from our sins. He's nailed the power of darkness to the cross so that we're in a new kingdom in which he's the head, the church. And he's made us fit to share in the inheritance of the holy ones in light. He's qualified us. He uses that language in, in 2 Corinthians 3. God made me sufficient for things that I can't be sufficient for. I'm insufficient, yet God made me able. He made me able to be able to do this work. We're joined unto that work. So if you look in verse 23, then sixth point, as part of this eternal purpose of reconciliation, which Christ in him, through him, and to him is reconciling all things to himself, then there's this clause. If we're, we'll move towards this, towards the fullness of this presentation and all that it means, if you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. The word if is, is, not, is not, a, uh, it's not intended to denote a, a probability of failure, but there's a, a, a requirement. Since you will... But there's still an if there. So we must continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. So remember, Jesus is doing this work as the wisdom of God. It can't move faster. It can't move slower. Jesus, as the arche, is, is prescribing what must be done. And so when we consider this, this the will of God, the reconciliation of all things unto himself, done through Jesus, the wisdom and the understanding of God himself, our purpose is to walk as Jesus walked in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him. And that's what Jesus did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He pleased him by working towards this purpose, the reconciliation of all things. And in that work, there's a bearing of good fruit, bearing, a bearing of fruit and good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then in verse 11, you see this same idea. Along the way, as we work hard, we grow in the knowledge of God, he's, Paul prays that we would be strengthened because this work of reconciliation is not done yet. It has been and is being done. So it's begun, Jesus is the beginning, but it continues. And so as it continues, we need the, to be powered with the power of his glorious might. We need his power to endure for the attainment of steadfastness and patience because we must continue in the faith, verse 23, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So we fix ourselves on this hope, the hope of the gospel. And in one sense, it, it's not really different from the idea of reconciliation, this big scope of the proclamation of what God is doing. The gospel is the good news that God is doing it, that, that he has done it. And then he says, Not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. minister. So we have then a reminder of how God looks at this, at this work. When Jesus was born, lived, and died, and raised, 
to the right hand of the Father, Father the world was changed. And within, within that story, there is a full proclamation of all things, of what God is doing, of the reconciling work that Jesus is doing, so that Paul can say, you've heard of this, and furthermore, it was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, made a proclamation. We hold on to that proclamation. That's our vocation in life. We hold on to the future and we work. <coughs> we work in the pleasure of God, putting our shoulder to the same work that Jesus did. So next week, we'll see, Paul says, I myself was made a minister of this, and he explains what that looks like in detail. What does it mean to share in this work of reconciliation? We come now to the table, which is the proclamation that God calls us to. It's the same proclamation made at his death. And we do it now to proclaim until he comes his work. What God has begun, he will finish. If you would, stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a good father. You're not, you're not the God that Satan tried to convince us that you were, a father who when we ask for bread gives us stones. Instead, you are a good and loving father who gives us all good things unto the end of your good work. We thank you that you have brought us into this work of reconciliation being done in and through and to our Savior Jesus, that you're calling us into the middle of that work. We who are aliens, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, you have and you are making us holy, blameless, and no one to accuse us so that we can stand before you, having been made clean, having the name of our Savior placed upon us and being found within him. Father, it's our prayer this morning as we're in your presence and we celebrate the fullness of what you have done. And help us to grasp that you have done it. You have done this work and, and also you are doing it. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to eat at your table that you would fill us with the faith to firmly grasp a hold of this hope that's laid up in heaven for us, the same hope that has been proclaimed from the death of Christ even until now to all creation. Father, we thank you for our Savior Jesus, and in him we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.